Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the truth that you have revealed to us through Jesus, for the salvation you've provided through Jesus, for the privilege of being able to study your word. We ask that your spirit will join us today, that we can advance in the truth that you have for us at this time in history and be your agents in this world to advance your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, good morning, and we are doing lesson um, number 10 in the quarterly, the Psalms, and the title is Lessons of the Past. And I want to tell you, uh, my heart is really heavy and sad as I as I teach this lesson this week. It was a very difficult lesson for me to prepare and to teach uh, because it's painful to realize, and I think you're going to feel the same pain as we go through this lesson, uh, how history is repeating itself in our very own day. Yeah. And it's just, it, it breaks my heart. I feel, imagine how Paul, after Damascus Road, felt toward his nation, his his church of the day, knowing all the blessings that they were given and the oracles and all the things that they were given to teach the truth and how that system had gotten so corrupted that they ended up persecuting Jesus instead of celebrating Jesus. Uh, and, and as we go through, and our lesson today is about lessons of the past, how we learn from history. And we're going to look at history, and then we're going to look at how that history has repeated itself, and it's repeating itself again today because the same wars, the same two sides are still at war, God's side of truth and love against Satan's side of lies, fear, and selfishness are still warring, and the same principles of both sides are at war. And so we see the same things infecting and taking over when, when God's principles are not being followed. But let's, let's go through the lesson. The first paragraph in Sabbath's lesson says, In numerous psalms, praise takes the form of narrating the Lord's mighty acts of salvation. These psalms are often called salvation history psalms or historical psalms. Some appeal to God's people, telling them to learn from their history, particularly their mistakes and the mistakes of their ancestors. Certain historical psalms contain a predominant hymnal note that highlights God's past wonderful deeds on behalf of God's people and that strength, strengthen their trust in the Lord who is able, to, is able and faithful to deliver them from their present hardships. And then Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 the following. Now, speaking of the Old Testament, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. And so the lesson brings forth an absolute important point in truth. We are to learn from history because if we don't learn from history, we repeat history. And that's what I want us to do, to look at the history and see if, if we can learn from it and break out of the repetition that seems to be happening. And so let's consider Jesus' words to the religious leaders, to the church leaders of his day, and ask, can we learn from this history? This is John 5, 39 to 40 out of the NIV. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Who, who were the people? Let's learn from history. Who were the people Jesus said this to? The Jews. The Jewish religious leaders. Yeah, the Jewish people were all in the ark, but, but particularly he was saying this to the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the leaders of the church of his day. And, and what are the scriptures that Jesus is referencing that these religious leaders are diligently studying? The Old Testament, 39 books that we have in our Bible today. Were the Jews studying the wrong scriptures? No. No. Did they belong to the wrong religious organization? No. Were they worshiping at the wrong temple? No. Keeping the wrong Sabbath? No. Eating the wrong foods? Paying the wrong amount of tithe? Wearing the wrong clothes? Were they doing any of, the, any of it wrong? No. Were they friends of God? No. 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 Were they teaching the truth? No. No. Or were they, despite teaching all the right doctrines, 
enemies of God teaching lies about God that were obstructing people from experiencing salvation. And the Jews at this time in history were God's chosen, especially blessed people, in other words, God's church. And what does the history, what does history teach us and the Bible specifically, explicitly say in Ezekiel and in Isaiah and in Romans three times about this church people that God chose? What does it say about them? This is what it says. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I'm not making that up. That's history, isn't it? Are we to learn from history? History teaches us that the people called and blessed by God with the scriptures misunderstood the Bible in such a way that they lied about God. They ended up worshiping a false picture of God. And when God came and stood among them, they not only hated him and killed him, they believed that justice required them to inflict the most excruciating torture possible upon him, just as some in our own church teach today. Jesus further said, Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. What are we learning from history? These religious leaders belonged to the right church that was ordained by God. They studied and taught from the right Bible. They ate the right foods. They worshiped on the right day. They engaged in evangelism, mission work. I mean, how could anything be wrong here? But when they did teach from the right Bible and evangelize the non-Jew to convert them, Jesus said they made him twice the son of hell. Is there a lesson from history that we are supposed to learn from this? Is there something wrong with the Bible they were were using for their religious work? Is there something wrong with the Sabbath that they were keeping? Is there something wrong with evangelizing? Is there something wrong with eating a healthy diet? (laughs) Is there something wrong with paying tithe? Well, what was wrong then? The interpretation they put on the Bible, specifically the way they understood God and how God runs his governments. There there are facts and there are interpretations of facts. What we learn from history is that one can have the right facts, belong to the right organization, that organization set up by God and called by God. Excuse me. An organization set up by God and called by God for special mission, yet interpret the facts in a way that form false beliefs about God. So significantly that the people end up hating and crucifying God when he stands with them. And then persecute, and then, and then they don't stop there. They then persecute and eliminate from their membership those who tell the truth about God, thus corrupting the organization even further eliminating light out of that organization. Is it possible that these same things have happened to Christianity and to Adventism? Did the Christian church end up interpreting scriptures in such a way that people claiming to be Christian, claiming to be representatives of Jesus, went to war with crosses emblazoned on their tunics to kill the non-Christians? Did people claiming to be Christian take people who believe differently about the Bible and burn them at the stake? Did that happen in Christianity? Are we learning from history? And did, in Christian history, the leaders of that church seek to silence voices that disagreed, seek to silence those carrying the actual truth? 
Do you see that in Christianity, the same abusive methods the Jews applied to Jesus and his followers, the Christian church applied to those advancing light? Does the fact that the Jews did this to Jesus mean that the Jewish nation was not called by God? No, No. No, they were called by God. Does the fact that the Christian church did this mean that the Christian church was not called by God? No. No, it was, it's, it's called by God too. Does the fact that the Jews and the Christians did this mean they had the wrong Bible? No. No, no they had the right Bible. Well, what about an Adventism? Has the Adventist organization repeated what the Jews did 2,000 years ago? Consider these words from one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, someone named Ellen White. They were written after 1888 General Conference, after the church leadership rejected the healing truth, after the leadership rejected the design law that we're teaching, after they rejected the righteous by faith message, and instead, like the Jews 2,000 years ago, chose the legal way, the rules way, the punishing God way. This is what she wrote. On many occasions, the Holy Spirit did work, but those who resisted the Spirit of God at Minneapolis were waiting for a chance to travel over the same ground again because their spirit was the same. Afterwards, when they had evidence heaped upon evidence, and that's how the Holy Spirit works, brings evidence that we can understand, some were convicted, but those who were not softened and subdued by the Spirit's work put their own interpretation upon the manifestations of grace of the grace of God, and they have lost much. They pronounced in their heart and soul the words that this manifestation of the Holy Spirit was fanaticism and delusion. They stood like a rock, the waves of mercy flowing upon and around them, but beaten back by their hard and wicked hearts, which resisted the Holy Spirit's working. Had this been received, it would have made them wise into salvation, holier men prepared to do the work of God with sanctified abilities. But all the universe of heaven witnessed the disgraceful treatment of Jesus Christ represented by the Holy Spirit. Had Christ been before them, they would have treated him in a manner similar to that which the Jews treated Christ. Now here's one more. Same author. An unwillingness to yield up preconceived opinions, that means holding to tradition, and to accept the truth... And the truth that they didn't accept was that the Ten Commandments were added. They believed they were eternal. And and the truth of 1888, God's design law is eternal. But the Ten Commandments were added later. They didn't accept that, the leaders. They they held to the legal view. Lay at the foundation of the large share of the opposition manifest at Minneapolis against the Lord's message through Wagner and Jones. By exciting the opposition, Satan succeeded in shutting away from our people in great measure the special power of the Holy Spirit that God longed to impart to them. The enemy prevented them from obtaining that efficiency, which might have been theirs in carrying the truth to the world. As the apostles proclaimed it after the day of Pentecost, the light that is to lighten the whole world with its glory was resisted and by the action of our own brethren has been in a great degree kept away from the world. Now, let's learn from history. Does the Adventist church have the wrong 66 books of the Bible? No. No. Do they have the wrong Bible Sabbath? No. No. Uh, Do they pay the wrong percent tithe? No. Do we have a wrong historical record? No. There are facts, and then there are interpretations of facts. The Jews interpreted the right Bible in the wrong way and ended up rejecting and murdering Jesus. And according to Ellen White, the Adventist leadership in 1888 did the same thing with the message that was to lighten the world for Christ's return. And the Jews, after crucifying Christ, as an organization, did not repent, but doubled down on their rejection and began persecuting Jewish people, members of their organization, who accepted the advancing light, who accepted Jesus, and began to try and share that light in the Jewish nation, those Jewish people, members of their own organization, began to be persecuted by the leadership of that organization and driven out from among them. Have we seen the same thing happen in Adventism? 
or in Christianity? Did the, did the Christian church of the dark ages, when people stood up with advancing light of the Reformation, did the Christian leaders persecute their own Christian members and drive them out from among the organization? And within Adventism, have Adventist leaders been doing the same thing? Have many of them, rather than accepting the advancing light, doubled down on the imposed law, penal legal lies, and have actively sought to expunge from fellowship members and pastors who know the truth and are sharing that light of God's end time message in their fellowship. Have you seen that? So what was wrong with the Jews 2,000 years ago? They had a legal way of understanding the scripture. They believed God's law is imposed and that justice is punishing rule breakers and that dealing with sin requires a sacrifice be offered to the offended God to pay for one's sins. They interpreted the right scripture in the wrong way. And the SDA church, church's officials publications since 1888 have been doing the same thing. Is the SDA church the wrong organization for this time? I don't believe so. I believe it was blessed by God with truth for this time, for a mission of taking an end time message to the world to prepare the world for Christ's second advent, just like the Jews were called to prepare the world for Christ's first advent. However, just like the Jews had leaders who created an orthodoxy of lies based on human law, so too in Adventist, uh, organ the Adventist organization, there is a cadre of leaders who have promoted the penal legal orthodoxy that is based on Satan's lies about God's law. And those who hold to those lies specifically oppose and obstruct the final message of mercy to the world, as Ellen White just wrote in 1888. And I believe just like 2000 years ago from the Jewish people came apostles who from their witness converted Gentiles who joined the true message and and took that message to the world, I believe from Adventist members will arise non-clergy, fishermen, tax collectors, physicians, who understand the true message and will share that message uh, where God opens the doors from, for them. And from their witness, a great multitude will join and share this end time message of calling people out of the Babylonian system of imperial, legal, religious, punishing God constructs into worshiping our creator. And I think that's where we stand today. What are your thoughts? Are we learning from history? Have I misstated things? What do you think? Do you see why I've been sad this week? Yeah. I don't think we're learning. It is sad. Because we're doing the same things they did, but we are aware of it, just not doing the right things. And we have the privilege as members to be like the apostles who were not trained theologians, who accepted the advancing light and took the true message, and the world was being changed by them. While the, while the church prior to the apostles, those, those leaders of the old system, worked to try and stop it. I think we will find a lot of Adventist leaders who have doubled down on the penal legal lies working to try to oppose this message. In fact, I've experienced it all over the world um, with various organizational leaders um, putting out documents and misrepresenting and claiming that I'm a blasphemer and all this kind of stuff. Any questions about that? We're going to continue on with history. Sunday's lesson focuses on the history of Israel as a people and their problems uh, as, uh, as lessons for us, what they went through and the lessons we can learn from that. And it's a rich history, many powerful things. The lesson mentions many, including the Exodus and the settlement in Canaan. And there are, um, are many lessons we can learn from that, such as the, le the object lesson. Uh, them being slaves in Egypt symbolically represents us being slaves in sin. Moses acted the role of deliverer to confront Pharaoh and deliver them from bondage. Jesus acts our deliverer to confront Satan and deliver us from the bondage of sin. The people who left were not just Jews, but a mixed multitude. Anyone who put the blood on the doorpost during the 10th plague, regardless of their ethnicity, left Egypt. They were thrown out and they left Egypt and went, but there was a mixed multitude. Anyone who accepts and claims Jesus as their savior joins Christianity in some form or fashion. 
um, and they're on their way to the promised land. But this mixed multitude had people who joined for wrong reasons. They didn't all have true conversion. And within Christianity, many joined the, the body. Um, but as Jesus said, the wheat and the tares grow up together. We're a mixed multitude of those who genuinely have Jesus in our heart and those who just have the form of Christianity. And they're, therefore, on the way to Canaan, there were all types of problems on the way to Canaan in that mixed multitude. And there's all types of problems in the church, as I just described, because there are a lot of unconverted in the church. Then consider this quote, because on the way to Canaan, they had a problem on the way to Canaan. There was a rebellion. Korah, Dath, and Abiram uh, started a rebellion in, in the camp. And, uh, and is there a lesson for us from that? Well, again, historical quote from Ellen White in the aftermath of Minneapolis. She says the following. Look at this. When I purposed to leave Minneapolis, the angel of the Lord stood by me and said, not so. God has a work for you to do in this place. The people are acting over, that's reenacting, the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. I have placed you in your proper position, which those who are not in the light will not acknowledge. They will not heed your testimony. At Minneapolis, what I just talked about, and what was she test what was she advancing and promoting? Read Desire of Ages. Read Steps to Christ. She was advancing design law, the true view of the gospel promoted by Jones and Wagner, that we become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, which is the righteous by faith message, uh, that the Ten Commandments were added, real, actual transformation, the rebuilding and healing of hearts, minds, the restoration of Christ's likeness within. We get new hearts and right spirits. The fulfillment of the day of atonement metaphor when when the bride is purified and, and is made ready to meet her groom. Uh, the cleansing of the of the church and preparing us to meet Jesus. This is all what she was acting, but church leadership rejected this healing view, chose instead to embrace the imperial legal view to, that we get declared to be righteous even though we remain unrighteous, that, that uh, atonement is not removing sin from our hearts and minds and bringing us back into oneness with God, but it is a legal thing happening in a book in heaven far away from what's happening in your heart and mind. And uh, just as... Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were rejecting the manna, the bread of heaven, and longing for the flesh pots of Egypt. So, too, those leaders in our church rejected the heavenly bread and were longing for the, the penal legal systems of this earth, the flesh pots of Egypt. And church leaders who prefer the imperial legal view have been telling Adventists ever since that you can't succeed. You can't have a victorious life. You're going to continue to live. Your only hope is that you have someone protect you from God because if, if you don't have someone protect you from God, he'll be required by law to kill you in the end. And they wonder why people don't trust God enough to open their heart to him. Continuing on with Ellen White's quote. But I will be with you. My grace and power shall sustain you. It is not you they are despising, but the messengers and the message I send to my people. And I say to our friends of Come and Reason all over the globe uh, that we hear from all the time because they uh, they share this message in their church and they can't uh, and they lose their their they're no longer an elder. They're told they can't teach anymore. They told they can come but sit quiet and don't speak. And we hear from all over the circle that people are told this. I tell you, friends of Come and Reason around the circle, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting the message of Jesus Christ for this time in history. Continue on with the quote. They have shown contempt for the word of the Lord. Remember, this is Ellen White uh, writing the message she said she receives from the angel of the Lord, who is the messenger to the people, my people. This is, this is she is suggesting a message, voicing it as if it's coming from Jesus himself. They have shown contempt for the word of the Lord. Satan has blinded their eyes and perverted their judgment. And unless every soul shall repent of their sin, this unsanctified independence that is doing insult to the spirit of God, they will walk in darkness. By refusing the, the message that came to the church in 1888 of design law, worshiping the creator and holding to the Roman imperial lie, they have blinded themselves to how reality works. 
and live in a fantasy of confusion and contradictions, mirroring the sinful world with a God who functions like leaders of the sinful world, a God who gets angry and wrathful and offended by our sin, a God who makes up rules, a God who uses his power to inflict torture, a God who is the source of inflicted death, a God who requires a blood payment to be given to him. This is straight up paganism that has infected Adventism, and it is taught in our literature because we've rejected this message. They are in true darkness, folks. It really is sad. So have we learned from history, or are we repeating history now today? The lesson also points out the problem with Israel constantly turning to Baal worship. And you know, we've gone over this many times, so I'll do it very briefly. But Baal, and are we repeating that history? Well, Baal was a Mesopotamian pagan god who was the son of El. El was the father of the, de- of the deities. El was the son. Excuse me, Baal was the son like Elohim and El Shaddai. Baal was the god of weather, thunder, lightning, harvest, brought the life to the land. Uh, Baal was the god who fought the great Leviathan, fought against the serpent. He fought against Moat, the god of death. And in his battle with Moat, Baal dies, rises again to bring life to the land. And so they, they worship Baal, the, the son of God, who is the creator, who fights the serpent, who fights against death, who dies on our behalf and rises again. Well, what's wrong? That's who we worship, isn't it? No. Baal required appeasement, payment, a legal offering had to be made to pay the god so he wouldn't punish. Baal became Zeus to the Greeks, Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to Christians who worship a god who requires the blood of a human sacrifice be offered to that god so that god won't kill you. And that's what we're teaching in much of Christianity, and that's what many of the leaders in the Adventist system are teaching. Consider this quote, again, historical from Ellen White. You can find it in Faith I Live By, page 9. Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false God as were the servants of Baal. Are we worshiping the true God as he is revealed in his word in Christ in nature? And what kind of laws do nature operate upon? Design laws. Or are we... During some philosophical idol enshrined in his place, you know, a legal potentate who makes up rules and kills you for breaking them. God is the God of truth. Justice and mercy are the attributes of his throne. He is the God of love, of pity and tender compassion. Thus, he is represented in his son, our savior. He is the God of patience and long suffering. If such is the being whom we adore and to whom whose character we are seeking to assimilate, we are worshiping the true God. This is not the God that is presented in the penal legal model. Or this quote, Prophets and Kings, page 685. While God has desired to teach men that from his own love comes the gift which reconciles them to himself. He has not reconciled us. We're the ones out of harmony. We're the ones who need to be changed. We're the ones who need to be set right. We're the ones who need to be restored. There's nothing wrong with God. He doesn't need to be changed. The archenemy of mankind has endeavored to represent God as the one who delights in their destruction. Thus, the sacrifices and the ordinances designed of heaven to reveal divine love have been perverted to serve as means whereby sinners have vainly hoped to propitiate with gifts and good works the wrath of an offended God. This is what Satan has done. This is what is being taught. Jesus died and you have to offer the right blood to him to propitiate his wrath because if you don't offer him the blood, he's required to pour his wrath on you and kill you. This is what the penal legal system does. It's so sad. We're exactly repeating the sad history of the Jewish nation and the Dark Ages church. Monday's lesson. Any questions about that? Do you see again how, how I've been sad this week? Yeah. Yes, we're all sad. It's very sad. True. The lesson focuses on God's promise given to Abraham, the promised land. What do you think of the promise that he gave to Abraham? What do you think of it? What is the promise he gave to Abraham in the land? Is this promise of the land that he gave to Abraham a standalone promise? In other words, Abraham, if you have faith in me, 
I'll reward you with land. Is that is that that's a standalone problem? You you do I'll give you the land. Is, is that the promise? No. Progeny. Or is this promise of the land part of another promise previously given to another person and is only being given to Abraham in conjunction with God's working out the earlier promise? Did God give an earlier promise to a different person? And Abraham now is picking up on that promise and God's saying, it's through you, Abraham, I'm going to fulfill my other promise. Well, did God make a promise to Adam? Mm -hmm. A covenant, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your heel and and you shall uh, bruise his head. This is the promise communicated before Adam and Eve that from Eve is going to come a seed that's going to crush the serpent. This covenant contains God's promise to send Jesus, doesn't it? the seed of the woman to overcome and destroy Satan and sin and redeem humanity. The entire Old Testament narrative is the fulfillment of this promise. And so to Abraham, we read, he says the following, Genesis twenty-two eighteen: In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Is that a new promise? Or is that the continuation or the focusing now on Abraham's family of the promise given in Genesis 3.15. Yes. Yes. And this promise is repeated to Isaac. Genesis 26, 2-4. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For you and your descendants I give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give you, give to your descendants all these lands and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Is this a new promise or is this, well, certainly not new because it said he gave it to Abraham. And again, Abraham's promise is the one he gave in Genesis 3.15 and it's repeated, repeated again to Jacob in Genesis 28. And behold, the Lord stood uh, stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is no doubt that God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promising that that region of land would be given to them and their descendants, but that promise of that local land region was for the purpose of fulfilling the original promise given to humankind to bring the Messiah so that all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed, not just the biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen. And that promise to Abraham was a type of the ultimate promise to the entire human race. Also to be received through faith like Abraham received his promise. Abraham received the local promise through faith to inherit that his descendants would inherit the local land. We receive the global promise through faith, but we don't receive a tiny little strip of land in the middle eight in the middle East. We receive, as Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the notice Jesus words inherit the earth. It's a gift an inheritance coming from the promise. So the Bible is filled with dual prophecies. And so this prophecy to Abraham ends up being a dual prophecy. It has a local regional application and it has a global universal application. 
The Bible is filled with these types of prophecies. Joel's prophecy about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit before the second coming of Christ, you can read about in Joel 2, 28 to 32. But Peter applies that to the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, 14 to 21. In Acts 2, it has a regional, local application. In Joel, it's talking about the global end of the world application. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 both start out referring to earthly kings, global, re, uh, local, regional application, and then transition into a global application to Lucifer and his fall. Jesus' prophecy about the second coming where he blends the local application of the fall of Jerusalem with the global ac- application of the second coming. We see this through scripture. Dual fulfillment prophecies, where there's a lesser application and a greater application. The covenant with Abraham is the same covenant that was given to Adam, but with Abraham, we now have the identification of the specific branch of the human family through whom the Messiah will, would come. And with the recommunication of the covenant to Abraham, God gives a dual fulfillment prophecy concerning the land. One, a smaller local regional promise that Abraham's genetic descendants would inherit the land of Canaan in order to fulfill their mission to be the genetic family through whom Jesus would be born. And two, a larger global spiritual fulfillment that the true descendants of Abraham, those who are like Abraham in character and faith, would inherit the entire earth. The covenant with and promised Abraham focuses on two promised lands. The local application is the one in which Abraham's genetic descendants are the branch of the human family through whom God accomplishes the promises of Genesis 3.15 to whom the Messiah is born. This local regional promise to Abraham informs him that his children would inherit the land in Canaan for the purpose of fulfilling the mission of being the avenue for Messiah and also evangelists to prepare for that, that Messiah's advent. So that when that Messiah comes, the seed can fulfill the global promise of crushing the serpent's head so that the meek will inherit the larger promise, the entire earth, the true promised land. So Abraham had two descendants or types of descendants, or shall we say two descendants of the promise. The genetic descendants who inherited Canaan in order to be the avenue for Jesus, our Savior, to be born. And then the spiritual descendants who, through faith, become heirs according to the promise to inherit the earth made new. And so here's the biblical evidence for our position. Now, do you, does everybody understand my position, what I'm, what I'm laying out here? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And hopefully it's making sense, but let's put the biblical evidence behind it. In Genesis 12, 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. This is the regional promise for the genetic descendants to occupy Canaan for the purpose of being the branch of the human family through which the Messiah would be born. But then God said in Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are, uh, from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offsprings, notice, for your offspring forever. This is an eternal promise. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count them, the dust, then they could count your offspring. Go walk the length of the breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. This is the larger global promise that the entire earth, east, west, north, south, all points in the compass for all time will be given to the people of God. The earth will be made new and those who are like Abraham in character, in faith, whose hearts have been circumcised from sin will be heirs according to the promise. And thus the apostle Paul, a former Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, a highly trained Jewish theologian in the first century wrote the following in Galatians 3, 26 to 29. 
you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen. We inherit the promise because of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself, in John chapter 8, and you can read this, explicitly told the Jewish leaders of his day this very truth, that genetics did not determine who was considered an heir of Abraham. They were claiming Abraham as their father, and he said, if Abraham was your father, you would believe in me and have the faith of Abraham. So he rejected the claim that the genetics determine who is the inheritor. And the dual fulfillment promise to Abraham has two starting points and two ending points. The starting point of the global promise was in Eden in Genesis 3.15. The starting point of the regional promise was when Abraham had faith and left Ur and went to that new land. The ending point of the global promise is when Jesus recreates the earth and the meek inherit it. The ending point of the regional promise for the genetic people to be the avenue for the Messiah was when they crucified Christ and Jesus said to them, your house is left to you desolate, Matthew 23, 38. And Jesus masterfully weaves these two covenant promises together in his prophetic description of the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming as described in um, Matthew 24 and Mark 13. The destruction of Jerusalem occurs because the fulfillment of the regional promise is over. The genetic descendants kept open the avenue. The Messiah was born. He accomplished his mission and their ability to fulfill the promise was done. It's done. It's completed. The global promise must now go to the world. It is time for the global application that culminates in the second coming and the meek inheriting the earth. And we're going to close this out with the writer of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, agrees with our assessment. Hebrews tells us that the faithful of God in Bible times, Abel, Enoch, Noah, along with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who lived in the promised land, did not receive the things promised that they were looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. All of these people of faith, according to scripture, quote, did not receive the things promised. They saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, end quote. And the Bible says that all of these people did not receive it, and that included the list Enoch was in that list. Well, Enoch walked into heaven and hasn't seen death. And it says he did not receive the things promised. That's right. And he will not receive the things promised until the earth is made new and the righteous inherit the earth. That's when he receives the promise of the land. Any thoughts, questions about that? Do we agree? It's a really powerful thing, and it goes to the heart of some of the deceptions that are going to come on the world related to that little strip of land as things unfold here in the near future. Tuesday's lesson, it says uh, Psalms 106 also evokes the major events in Israel's history, including the Exodus, sojourn in the wilderness, and the life of Cana. If It stresses the heinous sins of the fathers that culminated in the generation that was carried into exile. Thus, the psalm almost certainly was written when the nation uh, was in Babylon or after they had returned home. And the psalmist, inspired by the Holy Spirit, recounted for God's people these historical incidents and the lessons that the people should have learned from them. So what are we learning from the history of the children of Israel being captives in Babylon? Are there any lessons and object lessons for us? Why did they go into captivity? Why did they go? Can you all hear me? (laughs) Why did they go into captivity? 
because they worshiped false gods, because they preferred Baal to the creator God. So they went into captivity into Babylon. Babylon is symbolic of religious imperialism, uh, a, a Baal kind of God construct. In Daniel chapter 11, uh, Babylon represents the king of the north. And if you remember, as soon as uh, the, the, the worthies came out of the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar professes belief in Daniel's God and immediately passes a law that anyone who speaks ill against Daniel's God will be put to death. Because what does justice require? Well, you punish sin. And so Babylon represents this imperial, legal, penal, substitutionary, fraudulent Christianity that the Christian world has been held captive in ever since it Romanized, ever since it accepted the lie from the Roman imperial system that God's law works like human law, a system of rules made up, and God is the ultimate enforcer who kills lawbreakers. We have been held captive in Babylon. But the message of this time is Babylon has fallen, has fallen. It's time to come out of her, my people. Leave behind this imperial dictator God with his made-up rules and, and inflicted punishments. It's all fraudulent. That's Satan's lie about God. Babylon, of all the nations interacting with Israel in Bible times, was the first nation to make a codified system of law and order, the Code of Hammurabi. It rightly represents these fallen human penal legal systems. And when we worship a God whose, a God whose law works like human law, we are captured in Babylon. And the minds and hearts of so many Christians are captured in Babylon. But a message came. A message came to the people of God in Babylon. You are set free. Return to the Holy Land. And a message has been going to the world. The loud trumpet has been calling. Babylon has fallen. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. But how many people of the Jews left Babylon? About 50 to 60,000 left and went back to Jerusalem. The vast majority stayed in Babylon. How many are coming out of this penal legal fraud into worshiping the creator and understanding his laws or design laws? Only a remnant. The vast majority prefer the system of Babylon. Wednesday's lesson, first paragraph, However, in Psalms 80, God's vineyard is about the, it's about God uh, using the metaphor of a vineyard. God's vineyard is under his wrath. The prophet announces the vineyard's destruction as the sign of God's judgment against the vine has turned, uh, that has turned bad. Okay? So when you hear words like this, what law lens are you looking through? God's judgment, God's wrath. Is this judicial? The people broke the rules. They worshiped the false gods. So God made a judgment. Now he's punishing them. Or is this design law? God's judging is God accurately diagnosing what the problem is. And God judging what the best solution to the problem is. What's most therapeutic and a form of discipline for the people? And what is required in order to keep open the avenue for the coming Messiah who hasn't come yet? And without the coming Messiah, no human could be saved. So which way do we hear words like judgment? If we have the lie that God's law works like human law, then God's sitting up there. You broke the rules. I'm required to punish. If we have design law, we say these people are suffering um, I have to intervene in order to limit the, the necro- necrosis and spread of, of, the, of the destructive element so that I can bring my, my son to save them. Do we read God's wrath as his active use of power to inflict harm? Or God stopping or refraining his use of power to permit the harm that comes when we break his law that he's been protecting us from? Well, consider the following from an Adventist reformer, Ellen White, one of the reformers who was was resisted and rejected in 1888 by the legalistic leadership who prefers the Roman view. Notice how these quotes describe God's judgment and wrath. This is Patriarchs and Prophets, page 587. How great is the long suffering of God toward the wicked, the idolatrous Philistines, and backsliding Israel had alike enjoyed the gifts of his providence. 10,000 unnoticed mercies were silently falling 
in the pathway of ungrateful, rebellious men. Every blessing, blessing spoken to them by the giver, but they were indifferent to his love. The forbearance of God was very great toward the children of men, but when they stubbornly persisted in their impenitence, he removed from them his protecting hand. They refused to listen to the voice of God in his created works, design law, reality, and in the warnings, counsels, and reproofs of his word, scripture, and thus he was forced to speak to them through judgments. What kind of judgments? Removing his protective hand and letting them reap what they were sowing. Here's another one, the great controversy, page 35. The Jews had forged their own fetters. They had filled for themselves the cup of vengeance and the utter destruction that befell them as a nation and in all the woes that followed them in their dispersion, they were but reaping the harvest which their own hands had sown. Says the prophet, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Their sufferings are often represented as punishments visited upon them by the direct decree of God. Yes, that's how our quarterly often presents it. It is thus that the great deceiver seeks to conceal his own work. It's so sad that the deceiver is able to publish himself in our own journals. By stubborn rejection of divine love and mercy, the Jews had caused the protection of God to be withdrawn from them, and Satan was permitted to rule them to his will. Or, Great Controversy, page 36, next page. We cannot know how much we owe to Christ for the peace and protection which we enjoy. It is the restraining power of God that prevents mankind from passing fully under under the control of Satan. The disobedient and unthankful have great reason for gratitude for God's mercy and long-suffering and holding in check the cruel, malignant power of the evil one. But when men pass the limits of divine forbearance, that restraint is removed. God does not stand towards the sinner as an executioner of the sentence against transgression. Do you know that's exactly the opposite of what is taught in many of the Adventist publications by those who hold to the penal legal view? They explicitly say God is the executioner and God is required by justice to execute and he executed Jesus so he doesn't have to execute us. It is It is so diagnostic of the fact that they have accepted Satan's lie about God's law and they don't even know. Um, And this is why this this week has been so sad for me. It's just been heartbreaking to see the organization that I love and the message that we have been given so corrupted in such a way that we are obstructing the message that frees hearts and minds. It's so sad. That the restraint is removed. God does not stand towards the sinner as the execution of the sentence against transgression, but he leaves the rejectors of his, of his mercy to themselves to reap that which they have sown, every ray of light rejected, every warning despised or unheeded, every passion indulged, every transgression of the law of God is a seed sown which yields its unfailing harvest. The spirit of God persistently resisted is at last withdrawn from the sinner. And then there is no power to control the evil passions of the soul and no protection from the malice and enmity of Satan. Have we learned from history? Or are we making the same errors the Jews made by believing in a legal penal God who is the source of inflicted penalties? I'm sad to say I think we're doing the exact same thing that they did. But God has a people rising up from among that are giving the true end time message. The glory of God is being revealed, worshiping him who made the heavens and the earth. And we do that when we turn back to worshiping him as creator and understanding his laws are the design laws. Thursday's lesson, the uh, last paragraph says the Lord's faithfulness to his people leads the psalmist to affirm that the nothingness of idols, and to the unique supremacy of the Lord in the world. Reliance on idols renders the worshipers as hopeless and powerless as their idols are. The psalm demonstrates that God is to be praised as both creator and savior of his people. This is wonderfully conveyed in the two complementary versions of the fourth commandment of the Decalogue. Now, be, now notice this. 
because God's power in creation and history is unparalleled in the world. God's people should always rely on him and worship him alone. As our creator and our redeemer, he alone should be worshiped and worship of anything else or anyone else is idolatry. And I'm going to tell you, there is an important truth here that I'm glad they brought out, and that's the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We become like the God we, we worship and admire. So if we worship false gods and idols, we are corrupted by that. We damage ourselves. So the call to worship the true God is so beautiful, so powerful. I'm so glad it's here. Yet, yet I perceived a subtle distortion woven in here, a distortion that perpetuates a lie. So subtle, it's very hard to see. Can you see it? Do you see an, an obvious lie in here? Well, let's give these two sentences. This is wonderfully conveyed in the two complementary versions of the fourth commandment of the Decalogue. Because God's power in creation and history is unparalleled in the world, God's people should always rely on him and worship him alone. Do you see a lie in there? Worship God because of his power. Ah, you spotted it. (laughs) A subtle misunderstanding. The Sabbath is associated with creation week in the first commandment, first time it's given in Exodus 20. But in the commandment, are we told to remember it because God created that week? Is that the reason for resting on the Sabbath? No. No. Or is it a specific emphasized point in the Sabbath? Remember the Sabbath because God is powerful and God used power to create. So remember the Sabbath. Is that what, is that what it says? No. Or does it say that instead that God is the creator, he just used incredible amounts of power, but God rested In other words, God stopped using power. And because God stopped using power rather than continued using power, we are to be in awe. We are to admire. We are to worship. You see? It was never a question by Lucifer and his rebellion who had the power. And focusing on his power does not bring a solution to the sin problem. In fact, focusing on power alone intimidates and causes fear. What causes us to have security, what destroys Satan's allegations is not the fact God has power. Remember, the devils believe and tremble because he has power. But they don't trust him with the power. What makes God so awesome and so holy that in spite of using such immense power to create a new planet, in spite of creating a new intelligent species, in spite of sharing procreative abilities with this new intelligence and creating a world where all the ecosystems are operating on the principles of other-centered love and giving, where they're all interdependent upon each other, demonstrating his character built into nature, in spite of all this, God, in the face of Satan's rebellion... God does not use power to punish Satan for his rebellion. As the penal legalists say he would be required to. He does not use power to force people to bow. But instead he rests and stops using power and leaves people free to think for themselves and come to their own conclusion. So the holiness and the admiration for God that we are to have is in the fact that God ceased using power and rested, not simply that he's powerful. Does that make sense to everyone? Yes. Yes. And this is what is lost in the imperial legal view. Because in the imperial legal view, they must have a God who's powerful because they wanted God like the Jews 2,000 years ago who kept the right weekly Sabbath but didn't like a God who would not punish their oppressors. 
and they wanted a God who was powerful, more powerful than the Romans, and who would come and throw off the Romans and punish them. And there are many Christians and Adventists today that want a God who will use power at the end of time to make all their enemies suffer and pay for all the wrongs that they've done. And thus they subtly twist the meaning of the Sabbath away from the rest that God did on the Sabbath, the cessation of power, that God will not use power to inflict punishment, but he leaves all free to reap that which they sow. And thus from Galatians 6, 8, the Bible teaches those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. And we recognize that despite God having all power, we are safe with him because he will never use that power against us. But if you have the penal legal view, you will live for an eternity if you live in that world, always fearful if you do something wrong, maybe God will have to use his power against you. There's no safety there, there's no security, there's no love, there's no trust. And that's why the Lord waits. And that's why he delays his coming because he's waiting for his people to stand up and give glory to him for the hour in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about God and stop judging him to be this penal legal uh, enforcer of the rules and see him for the creator that he actually is, the one who on Sabbath stopped using power and rested from all his works. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your watch care. We thank you for the freedom you have given us. We thank you that you are always for us and that you are the source of life, not of death. And we surrender our hearts to you now. Ask for the victory Christ has achieved. Reproduce it in us and make us the special lights for you at this time in human history that the world may be lighted and you may come. We pray in your holy name. Amen. 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 Amen.